Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode of the New Statesman podcast is supported by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and simple to build your own professional website and online shop. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code STATESMAN at checkout. A better web starts with your website. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week we'll be asking whether these are the last days of Great Britain. First, I talked to George Eaton and Nusha Kalian about a week that caught Westminster off guard, with polls for the first time putting the Yes campaign ahead. Then our editor Jason Cowley, himself a unionist, talks to Jerry Hassan, who favours independence, about what the future means for Britishness. Finally, Ian Steadman, Fiona Rutherford and I discuss the new Apple, small phone, big phone and little tiny watch. Our cover story this week is Britain in Meltdown, a reaction to Westminster's panic over a poll which showed for the first time the Yes to Independence campaign ahead. Following that, the party leaders decamped to Scotland to show how much they loved Scotland. Poor old Scotland doesn't really love them back. I'm joined by our political editor George Eaton and Anusha Kalian, acting editor of The Staggers, to discuss a very turbulent week in politics. Um, George, first of all, cancelling PMQs and getting on the train to... To, to love bomb the Scots. Was that a good idea? Um, I thought it was a terrible idea at first. I thought it made it very easy for Alexander and the Nationalists to attack them as uh, Westminster collectively. Um, now I think they had to do something simply for their own sort of conscience. And you think if I was the leader of a party, I'd want to do the same. And I also think um, there are Labour, Lib Dem, Conservative voters there. Even some Conservative voters, I mean, actually about 400,000 or so. So these are people, who, some of whom may be undecided, um, who the party leaders could potentially reach. And I think the simple act of them going up there might have made some Scots pause for thought and think, well, actually, if they are all this worried about it, maybe we should be worried too. And Anoush, I noticed that um, one of the best or worst, depending on your point of view, soundbites from yesterday was David Cameron saying, this isn't about just once kicking the effing Tories. And I like to think of a focus group in which they worked at the exact level of swear word that he was allowed to use there. This is a decision for a generation. How much do you think this is motivated by anti-Westminster generally or specifically anti-Tory sentiment? Well, it's interesting that Cameron made such a self-deprecating remark because obviously the message has got through to him that Alex Salmond is framing this as an anti-Westminster 
specifically anti-Tory debate. Um, I don't know whether he him addressing it was a particularly good idea because it sounded a bit flippant. Um, but it's definitely true that that kind of framing of the debate has worked for Alex Salmon so far. And that's why I actually think that Ed Miliband's speech yesterday was, was quite good because he was drawing on Labour's appeal in Scotland and Gordon Brown did the same. And they, there are lots of Labour voters up there, so... So that could work. Well, George, let's talk about Gordon Brown because I kind of feel that he's he's sort of like a kind of old prize fight. He's a bit like Sylvester Stallone in Rocky. He's back, <laughs> you know, um, you know, having been down on his down on his luck a bit, you know, in haunting Westminster, not really seen very much around there, but still an MP. This does seem to have given him a whole new lease of life. It has. Everyone you speak to acknowledges he is the big beast of uh, Scottish Labour politics. Uh, yes, he had a disastrous result in, in 2010, but actually Labour's vote went up in Scotland to 42%. Um, they held all of their MPs there. And even Alex Salmond has privately acknowledged that he's the one unionist politician he fears because he can speak to those uh, working class Labour voters who he needs to win over if he's to get a majority for independence. Um, with other unionist politicians, his tactic is always to portray them as in bed with the Tories, as he said to Alistair Darling in their second debate. But that's not a charge you can credibly throw at Gordon Brown as a man who loathes Tories with every sort of inch of his being. Um, and for that reason, um, he he is someone who um, you know who Salmond hasn't quite found a way to found a way to dismiss. Do you think that Gordon Brown's obviously enjoying this? Do you think that he? This marks a return to public life for him after a couple of years of being very quiet and going away and writing a book and so on. Mm, it could well do. And um, in his speech this morning, um, he said for the first time that if Alex Salmon keeps peddling lies about the NHS, then he's prepared to return to the Scottish Parliament to take him on. Uh, so the assumption's always been among uh, Labour figures that he will stand down from Westminster at the general election. Um now, whether whether he goes to Holyrood may may depend on, on obviously on the way the vote goes. If it's if it's especially if it's a, a tight victory for no, then uh, Brown will undoubtedly feel that this question will come round again. And um, it is an issue that's obsessed him obviously for for years and for decades. And um, when he was when he became prime minister, one of the uh, themes that he was constantly talking about was Britishness, and you can see why. And he didn't really achieve his aspiration of creating an overarching British identity. Uh, but the need for that now is greater than ever. And so I'd expect him to return to that theme as well. So Gordon Brown, a winner from the independence campaign. So let's zoom out a bit and look at the whole two years that this has been going on. Losers, I would say, Anoush, maybe we say Johan Lamont, who's the Scottish Labour leader. Yeah, um, almost invisible, actually, in, in the debate. Um, and also you have these um, politicians who are also um, supporting, yes, like the Green Party. They've also been extremely quiet. So actually voters have had little opportunity to hear from other leaders on either side of the debate other than Alex Salmond and um, Alistair Darling, who's been particularly mild-mannered and, and quite quiet and managerial in his approach. So Alex Salmond has dominated in terms of leadership. But a rare exception to that being perhaps Ruth Davison, who's the Scottish mm. Tory leader, who is, as we discussed even before, not a typical Tory. George, she's had quite a good campaign, hasn't she, given that there's only... there. Are, what's your great line is that there are more pandas in the yes, Edinburgh Zoo than Tory than, MPs than in Tories. Scotland. Um, it's funny to think that um, the breakup of, of, of the UK could cost them the same number of MPs as Douglas Carswell's defection. So soon, if you have another Tory defect to UKIP, UKIP will have cost them more MPs than, than Scotland. But she has had a, she has had a good campaign. She is quite, she's a different kind of Tory leader. 
Um, and I mean, she she took the extraordinary step of saying that it was quite likely that her party would lose the general election simply because, and this is this was the same uh, same sort of thinking that inspired Cameron's effing Tories remark that they recognised that um, there is a tribal anti-Toryism in Scotland that threatens to push people into the yes camp. Um, it's interesting. I mean, Scotland isn't necessarily a more left-wing country, though. I mean, if you look at how they their stance on um, on the economy, on public services. I mean, England's not as right-wing as people think, and Scotland's not as left-wing. But what there is is this tribal anti-Toryism where people from childhood onwards are told, you know, don't trust the Tory, basically. Um, and that is a big that is a big problem for the Conservatives, which is why at one point, for instance, they even considered changing the name of the party there. Well, that was I thought that was fascinating. I think it was um, Jess Brammer from Newsnight tweeted a poster from the independence campaign that had something about the poll tax on it. And you thought, wow, this is, you know, this is long, you know, long hatreds now being being put up. Um, in other, other winners, I would say Jim Murphy from um, from the Labour Party. He's had a he's he got egged, admittedly, um, but he's written a very funny diary this week about pitching up places with his soapbox. He's had a pretty good campaign, too. He has. So he's been doing this sort of hundred visits and hundred days tour and and. Um, he's been the unionist sort of greatest street fighter, um, standing on his sort of iron brew crates, um, and it's, it's it's been politics of a of a, of a kind that 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 we thought perhaps uh, no longer existed. And he is certainly seen by some, predicted by some as a future Scottish Labour leader there, uh, particularly as uh, the Scottish Parliament acquires more powers and and people start to pay more attention to it. Um, he hasn't uh, he hasn't fared well under Ed Miliband's leadership. So he was at one point shadow defence secretary. He was demoted to shadow international development secretary. Um, you can see why um, that may be a more promising route for him than uh, sort of than than a second rate uh, job in government. And finally, the big man himself, Alex Salmond. How do you think Westminster's view of him has changed uh, during the course of the campaign? Um, I think that. Um there's been a certain amount of respect for how he does politics and you can sort of link it to the way that the leaders sort of quietly are in awe of the way that Nigel Farage goes around as and is quite a um, sort of enigma- he's so charismatic and cocky and charismatic yeah, I think cocky. that's one of the funniest things about Alex Salmond he's pulled off an incredible trick I think which is we we'll call it a trick or we'll call it genius politics which is that he's managed to successfully channel an anti-politics sentiment while being to his core a politician so some of that like we talked about that kind of desire to give the establishment a kick not just the Tories a kick he manages to do while sidestepping the fact that the SNP is in government if people are unhappy with where Scotland is the SNP has to take some of the share of that blame yeah, uh, I mean, Salmond has long been been underestimated and um, no one saw the uh, SNP majority coming in in 2011. I mean, this the last week in many ways has felt very reminiscent of that. I mean, the Scottish Parliament, uh, the electoral system they used was designed to prevent any party from, from winning a majority and then Salmond pulled off the seemingly impossible. Um, and the fear is that he's, he's going to do it again. I mean, that certainly was the fear until you had the uh, salvation poll last night putting uh, the, uni- the union side ahead again. Uh, you know, most people still think it will be uh, a narrow no. Um, but as I say in my column this week, it could feel like a very pyrrhic victory, that um, the fact they've had to throw everything at this when they thought the, the race was sort of all done by the counting is humiliating for Westminster, really, and it has been permanently diminished. And... Coming after the financial crisis, the expenses scandal, austerity, UKIP winning the European elections, it is another blow to Westminster's authority. And you start to think, is there any 
party or any any man or woman capable of capable of turning this round um you do feel at the moment as if uh, the 2015 election is going to be quite a depressing affair in which voters simply vote for the the party they hate the least it's going to be who loses the least in the yeah. next election rather than who wins well we'll be back i presume um extremely tired but um with all the news uh, and updates about next week's um the result of next week's poll next week uh, thank you very much to george and anoush Hello, I'm Jason Cowley, editor of The New Statesman, and today I've got with me Joey Hassan, academic, writer and supporter of Scottish independence. Joey, we're speaking on the day after the three Westminster leaders came to mm. Scotland in what seemed to me a state of blind panic. Some of the big financial institutions issued warnings about um, a Scottish and independent Scotland. Um, what's your take on where we are? Well, it's interesting we're speaking one week from the vote, September the 11th. This is also the anniversary of the uh, 1997 Scottish devolution referendum. I think what that tells you is something rather important about this debate, that this isn't uh, a full stop or a destination of this debate, whatever whatever the result. It's part of a, to use that cliche word, journey. It isn't kind of either or. You, know, you don't have to have a binary choice with a binary uh, question. But yes, Cameron, Clegg and Milband came up in uh, in blind panic, you know, taking their separate trains, not meeting and things like that. And A, they've got perfect right to come. Um, Cameron is the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. But it looked it looked like panic. And what sense I got was that Scottish people, I'm just talking not about political people, you got a sense that they quite liked the idea of one opinion poll has caused the whole edifice of the British stake and the, the British establishment to shudder, to quake, to, to move a little bit. And, and they quite like the sense of that, that that's about people realising they've got a bit of collective power. Then there's a question about how they use it, do they use it? But I think people have quite liked this moment. Yes, I, I, I like the moment myself very much as well. Mm. Um, as you say, one opinion poll, the YouGov poll in the Sunday Times, which gave a small lead to the Yes campaign for the first time. It's it, it, an extraordinary reaction. Mm. And blind panic, I think, is the correct phrase. You've written a piece for us this week, mm. both published first on the website and also an edited version this this week's magazine. And we've got your name on the cover, mm -hmm. which is good. Um, you use a very arresting phrase in the piece where you speak about independence of the mind, that mm. the conversation that's been going on, very animated conversation in Scotland for a long mm. time now, and how many people have been animated, reinvigorated, some of them engaging with politics and the, the conversation for the first time. Yeah. And you, you say this, this, these forces that have been unleashed cannot now be contained. Yes, I think that's right. And in fact, the phrase independence of the mind, I, ha I have a book out uh, after the vote called Independence of the Scottish Mind. The publishers insisted on the word Scottish in it so people knew it was about Scotland. And uh, in that, actually, I'm talking about the elite conversations, and I mean soft elite, like intellectuals, commentators. That That is part of Scotland that has uh, informed the last 30, 40 years. But what's interesting is that that's, that's the issue of how much that's been led by or shaped is kind of both, really, uh, a kind of popular sense of clearly Scotland never went away, it's always been autonomous, but this Scots sense of, of distinctiveness and kind of what I would always call, I would call something a narrative of difference because we're different and not that different. But all of this has really flowered in, in, in the last three years where debates that were once uh, you know, small scale or a, a selectorate 
have have broken broken out in the public. So I'm walking down one of my little streets near my house last night. I walked past my garage, and uh, the guy who runs the garage is talking to a, a stranger and saying, uh, "Are you voting yes or no?" And the guy says, "I'm thinking voting no." And he says, "Are you not interested in change? Are you not interested in changing this country? The things that are wrong?" And he goes, "No, I'm not interested in changing this country." <laughs> and those are the sort of debates that people are having all over the place, and you just catch all the time. And and it's really exploded in, in the last week with, with this opinion poll, where people are conscious of the fact this is a historic moment and they have a power. The, um, talking to you um, over the years and reading, reading your essays, I've always had a sense that you, are, you could, although you're, you're voted yes, you've already had a postal mm. vote, you could ultimately favour the new statesman's position. Mm. And we've long supported a reconfigured union, some kind of quasi-federalist structure. I mean, I like I like the British umbrella, as I think you do. We both feel culturally British, mm. um, things there that we both like. Mm. We don't want to see the relationship... We want to see the relationship in these islands reconfigured yeah. without Scotland necessarily being fully independent. Yeah. Is that is that fair summary of another position that you would support? Yes, uh, and it's something I've said many times in Scotland because in part of the Scottish uh, commentary about the independence question, people who feel a bit ambivalent about saying yes or no or how they interpret it would say, uh, I think we're moving towards federalism or I'd like us to move towards federalism or quasi-federalism. That's, that's in my ideal situation, where I would like to be as well. That's not where we are at the moment because there's a whole question about how we get in this asymmetrical union, the issue of England, the broken state of, of Westminster politics. But I, I, think, I think a Scottish, a Scottish no vote, um, even actually a Scottish yes vote in many respects, but a Scottish no vote allows the possibility of one last chance of reforming the United Kingdom. And actually, in a way... One one exciting prospect would be a unique British compromise mm. and contribution to the modern world. We know that sovereignty isn't an absolute. Um, I have big problems with words like sovereign parliament about Scotland or Westminster. Sovereign will of the Scottish people is one of the myths of the Scottish debate. Um, some nationals think it's kind of like a legal entity. Uh, you know, actually something that is practiced. Well, clearly it's not. And, and I think if we could do something that, 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 that shared the sovereignties and powers uh, in these four nations... That would be something really, really interesting because the nation state has a role, but we've got all these other issues about international cooperation and globalisation and how you do progressive politics. And I think that'd be something really, really interesting. Mm. It's, it's nearly as interesting. An independent Scotland has lots of attraction for pe- people like me as well, but that's nearly as interesting. No, I mean, I'm inclined to agree. And, he, and even Alex Salmon, you know, brilliant politician that he is, mm. he speaks about the complexities of an independent Scotland. He, he favours a, a currency union, a monarchical union, um, a social union. So all sorts of interesting unions and possibilities, mm. whether there's a, a no vote, a narrow no vote mm. or a narrow yes vote. Yeah. And Salmon, the interesting thing about the SNP leadership is they are post-nationalist without ever explicitly calling themselves that. They don't call themselves post-nationalist in the way that Tony Blair didn't completely rub rub the face of the Labour Party in the dirt, but he didn't actually say, you know, socialism is dead. He just practised it. And uh, so the, that's the politics they inhabit. And, and a, couple of, a couple of SNP cabinet ministers have explicitly said this over the years. Yes, th- this is a, going to go from being a union state to a union of, of, of states or mm. quasi-states. And that's quite interesting. And then it's the... This is not just a constitutional debate in Scotland. It's not about just being independent or what order of the flags you put them in or or the fact, do we keep the Saltire and Union Jack? Something I, I'm quite happy to because I think 
I think Union Jack's quite an attractive, um, quite an attractive design. Again, that would be unpopular <laughs> in uh, in uh, Scotland. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Uh, in some quarters, but you know, if we have some element of political cooperation across these aisles, why not have a flag for it to to uh, represent it? And I think that's that's possible because the, the vote is going to be very, very close. So, you know, between a narrow no vote and a narrow yes vote, I don't think there actually is that much difference uh, beyond one clearly Scotland votes for independence. They both are expressions of late modernity. This is not the 19th century. We are not dealing in, you know, the Westphalian notion of, of a nation state. And you've used the resonant phrase Third Scotland about all of all of these new forces that have, are flourishing and aren't necessarily affiliate, affiliated to any party, yeah. Labour and even the SNP. And you've, you've been a great critic of the SNP machine approach to politics. Um, why isn't there a third England? Why aren't we seeing a, a comparable flourishing in the South? Well, to have a third something, like a third Scotland, you have to understand what the other two are. And maybe that's one thing you're missing in England. So when I said third, what I meant was... We've just got out of the the Labour establishment version of Scotland. That was, people called it a machine. They called it a Labour machine. By the last few years, the metaphor, it was a bit of a metaphor of the machine. It wasn't much of a machine. Um, And then it collapsed. And lo and behold, what do we get? We get an SNP version of the machine that actually is a bright, shiny machine. And you even have people who seamlessly cross from one machine to the other without pausing for breath or even changing a single view, which I find uh, a little bit problematic. I mean, I was always actually in favour of independence in the Labour Party from the early 80s, but just kept, you know, kept quiet because there wasn't any point saying so until we got a parliament and until the parliament was uh, was, was was doing things. And so with those first and second Scotlands, and, and they're both kind of establishments, it's like, well, that's not much of a choice. And, and lots of people who are interested in politics and public life don't see entry points into that or choose not to. So... When the referendum came, all these new self-organising groups began to flourish, like Radical Independence Campaign, National Collective, Jimmy Reid Foundation, Commonweal. Uh, and I thought, this is something huge going on. It's bringing in people. The boundaries of public life and political life are changing and shifting. And what it was shifting as well is who's got power, who's got permission, who's got authority. And you can see this across the Western world. This is, you know, mm-hmm. Scotland is red on other places in Europe here. But for us as a society that was very, very institutionally dominated, uh, despite all the radical myths, this was something huge and significant and a society change. It wasn't just about politics. Can they can they form or create a political programme there? One one saw some, some something like the Occupy movement, which sprung up on, mm. at the time of the financial crisis and had great popular energy and a lot of support, but didn't have a programme to go beyond, yeah. beyond that. Um, how do these forces organise themselves into something lasting? Well, that, that's one of the, the huge questions. The, the, this third Scotland, is it's a shift in gender. There's more women in it. It's generational and it's also geographic. It's wider than that narrow central belt. So it's kind of like a 3G Scotland in a way uh, forming. 
one of the questions will be, apart from the sustainability question, because lots of people put their careers on hold, you know, yep. not taking jobs after university and so on, is there's two things. One is Commonweal, the influence of Commonweal, which is a little bit mood music, but is one of the significant set of ideas. It's where that goes. Does it try and influence the political parties? Does it go into the SNP if it thinks the SNP is the main place? And the radical independence people, they're talking about forming uh, a political party, a new left party, and trying to work out how to do it in a way that isn't like the usual typical left party. And those are huge challenges. How, by embracing structures, you can still keep an element of looseness. It's questions that have faced all the new lefts we've known and the Greens and so on. In Scotland, those are at least still really, really interesting And also because you have PR, proportional representation, we, we still have... I say we in England, at least, we have the first past the post, yeah. or we, we do certainly for the Westminster elections. That makes it much more difficult for a smaller new party to find representation in, in Parliament. That's right. I mean, the radical independence law, they, they, they're, they're starting with low aspirations, thinking they can just maybe at the minimum win a couple of seats in 2006. That's eminently achievable. Also, look at the bigger picture here. Scottish political parties like UK have very few members. There's something like 1% of Scotland are members of political parties, just, just like the rest of the UK. More than half of those are in the SNP. The Tory party and Lib Dems are dying on their feet. The Labour Party is in a terrible state. Mm-hmm. There is the ground, given the SNP are morphing into being this new class, the new established, there is entirely a ground which should be occupied by Labour for this kind of anti-system centre-left party that is challenging that way. Now, Labour can't occupy that ground forever as, they're, as, they're, as they haven't adapted to 40 years of the SNP. I'm posing this only as an outlier option. It's not beyond the realms that a new left party could, could as in, say, Germany or the, or the Nordic, establish a significant vote that takes from the SNP part and takes quite a bit of the Labour vote as well. And just before we finish, Jerry, um, what about um, Alex Salmon's optimism strategy? He comes across as a kind of Celtic Dr. Pangloss at times. All, all will be for the best in the best of all possible worlds. Do you, are you worried about his approach? Yeah, um, I think I think optimism is an ideology and, and it's a problematic ideology. Lots of people have written on this, like the American writer Barbara Einenreich. Um, it's always posing that whatever the circumstances, you know, just believe uh, that the power of belief and look what that's done to financial markets. Mm. It's, it's a really, really thin approach. What it did do is that the SNP bought into a thing called positive psychology, Martin Seligman and all this, yep. and, and they used it to, 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 to run in 2007 on the positive potential of self-governing uh, Scotland. It completely wrong-footed the Labour Party. They then lost it a bit in the banking crash, but they refound it again in 2011. Yet again, it wrong-footed the Labour Party. What, what the independence referendum has shown really profoundly is the limitations of that, because uh, the, the, the bright young things in Yes Scotland then totally have bought optimism is what wins mm-hmm. it, whereas clearly they were fighting against an inept Labour Party. And you see it in the last few weeks, this is not an optimistic strategy. This is a strategy that is populist. It's about going on about Westminster, going on about Tories, going on about NHS privatisation. Now, the NHS privatisation, you can say, you know, there's a bit of dishonesty there um, and mass exaggeration. But what it is doing, it has a real, real deep traction. And the gender gaps closed dramatically and that is one reason for it. So this strategy now has been very, very effective and it's not an optimism uh, strategy. Alex Salmon's a, you know, very, very astute politician. For sure. And, we're, you know, we've, we've worked with him. We've had him down for a New Statesman lecture. He collaborated with me on a special issue of the magazine earlier in the year. Um, are these the last days of Great Britain? That would be that would be interesting, wouldn't it? I mean, yes, independence only involves taking the word great out of the union, doesn't it? Which is a rather, <laughs> rather, rather, rather timely, I think. I am, um, 
it, it, it feels, it does feel like that and it doesn't feel like that in Scotland. It doesn't feel like it's a nation, a way to vote for independence, but it feels something really, really interesting. There are flags everywhere, yes, posters. There is buzz across all the urban spaces of Scotland, city and town. This feels like a nation that is, is, is galvanised. Now, when I say that, we have evidence on that. Um, I can't remember which poll it was, but in the last two, three weeks, 70% of Scots have talked about the referendum. That, that, that's an amazing figure. That's higher than the Westminster turnout in Scotland at the last last election. So it's it's the beginning of something and the end of something. What I think is the end of it, it's the end of the old Scotland, where the, the institutions ran things, and it is the end of the old union. But it isn't a kind of black and white, You one day we wake up in a new nirvana. It's been happening for decades and decades and decades and what's changed is uh, this week uh, part of the British establishment just woke up to the fact that their country is being taken from them or changed under their very feet. Absolutely and they've, and the British establishment, the Westminster establishment has been fantastically complacent, fantastically smug and this wonderful democratic conversation that's taking place in Scotland, it's, it's terrific that it's shaken the foundations of the British state one, won't, one doesn't know what the result will be next week but um one can safely say, I think, that the British state will never be the same again. Yeah, and it's part of a huge um, international uh, story. You know, if, if one were thinking about how Scotland is perceived in the world, I was looking at the media village uh, down by the Scottish Parliament yesterday, there's 120, um, 120 countries you know, coming to, 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 to see this mm-hmm. moment. So this is a huge, I, I detest words like brand about nation, but this is a huge, you know, mm-hmm. Scotland arriving on the international stage. Actually, something began a little bit with Al Megrahi, whatever you think of the decision. That was a huge story in the American media, controversial, but it, Scotland beginning to emerge on the international stage, whereas before it's been, um, it's it's not been there. It's, not, it's been invisible. And so in a sense, this is the, the, the independence, quasi-independence of Scotland already emerging, that it is seen as this distinct political actor and um, you know, embryonic state, and, um, you know, quasi-independent. Excellent, Jerry. Thanks very much. I hope you'll um, be back in touch, write for us again soon. This week's New Statesman covers, the headline is Britain in Meltdown, the establishment is in blind panic over Scotland. So if you're interested in this subject, as I'm sure you all are, do buy the magazine, do read Jerry's piece. And thanks very much for listening. This episode of the New Statesman podcast is supported by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and simple to build your own professional website and online shop. The easy-to-use drag-and-drop tools, responsive designs and 24-7 customer support teams based in New York and Dublin mean you can create a beautifully designed website for as little as £5 a month. This includes a free domain name when you sign up for a year. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code STATESMAN to get 10% off and show your support for the New Statesman. No credit card required. Start building your website today. We're Apple crazy this week with the announcement of a new iPhone 6 and an Apple Apple Watch, not an iWatch, even though that would be a logical thing to call it. I'm joined by Ian Stedman, our tech writer, and Fiona Rutherford, our Welcome Trust scholar, to talk about, well, let's talk about, first of all, are you going to buy the watch, Fiona? No, I don't wear watches anyway. Right. <laughs> and it seems a bit expensive to, for just a watch. I know it's like an iPhone and a watch, but... I have an iPhone already, I don't need one. The problem as well is that you do kind of need both the phone and the watch to get the most out of it because they talk to each other and the phone can't do certain things without uh, the watch also communicating with it. Um, I like the, the whole the weirdness of the fact that it's like this kind of, do you know what would be really crazy, guys? 
if you had a thing on your wrist that told the time, <laughs> that would be the most unbelievable. Oh, radical. It's uh, like, like imagine a phone that made phone calls. That'd be... Well, that was the other thing. Is that I thought, God, this is how you really know that you're getting old. When I heard about the iPhone 6 launch, I thought, the only things I really want from my iPhone are, I wanted to make phone calls and I want the battery to last for more than an hour and a half. Yeah, you're out of luck there. No, <laughs> it's, so... it's bigger, but the problem with a bigger phone is they've also made it thinner because they were very sort of um, aware of the weight issues that come with making a bigger phone and it is a lot bigger it's like five, well there's two there's the iphone 6 which is slightly bigger than the iphone 5s and there's the iphone 6 plus which you can tell steve jobs isn't there anymore because 6 plus is like a name that he would never let go uh let out onto the public it's just really sounds also, like a samsung name um, and that's 5.5 <laughs> inches large which is basically that's only an inch and a half off the ipad ipad mini so you're getting into the it's a phablet phablet <laughs> it's the world's um, most horrible that's the that's no one's come up with a better term than that annoyingly well it would be a tone would be the other way around which would be really pointless <laughs> but the other thing is that it's so thin that the camera the lens in order to get a camera lens on it that's no longer flush <laughs> yeah. so what you've done is you've just you've taken it beyond the point at which it can actually work um Will you buy a new iPhone though? Do, are you an iPhone user, Fiona? I've just upgraded to the 5C, so I'm kind Ooh. of behind, I think. <laughs> I'm on a 4S. I've let it all wash over me. I had a great realisation where I was like, I found an iPhone that works reliably. Yeah. I'm going to hold on to this one. I'm never upgrading <laughs> exactly. it. I still think they, they, the design of the iPhone peaked at the 4 and the 4S. It's a really nice mm. design. With the with the 5 and too long. Now the 6, they're kind of, they've gone back to kind of... Um, well, it's all, it's Apple, so it's very nice. It's still very high for what it is, but it's all rounded edges again and, and uh, a bit plasticky, which um, isn't kind of the thing that you expect from an iPhone. And there's a problem with, um, so if you're jogging and you have your earphones in, that it keeps activating Siri all the time. People have been complaining about that. Oh, them. I haven't seen that. Yeah, it keeps happening to me. So. The, the charger cables <laughs> are, the, are the problem we were talking about. Yeah, they keep breaking the, the lightning charges. That yeah. Are, I've got two, like, um, four of them so far, I think. What, yeah. do you have, like, what are you doing? <laughs> no, it's just that they, they, they bend. When you, If you bend them just too much, they, they break the inside oh the cable. It's... It is extremely annoying that they change the charger size. I also mm. didn't had never realised before until I lost my um, MacBook Pro, no, my, sorry, my MacBook Air uh, charger cable, That that's a different charger size, like yeah. The, yeah. which is really, there is no reason for that, apart <laughs> from the fact that... And that's just Apple's arrogance. That like, they they, could use they want you to be sad. Yeah. <laughs> they could use USB like everyone else, but they don't want to. It's like when they were the only people who really used Firewire, even though there was no need for Firewire to exist because yeah. USB cables existed. Um, They're but, kind of trapped in Apple. Like, once you start, you can't really get out of it. The well, ecosystem, anyway. as they call it, <laughs> yeah. yes. Well, I really buy that whole thing. So um, after Steve Jobs died, uh, Michael Gladwell wrote a piece about, you know, the fact that all of those kind of, those geniuses came up to a time where you were you were a tinkerer, you know, you were able to take things apart, you were able to play with operating systems, you know, famously... Um, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, you know, used to do phone freaking where they would hack into fo- phone calls and stuff like that. And now they've just created these things that are sealed boxes that you have mm. no control mm. over whatsoever. You're not allowed. I think the the stuff with the U2 album. So they decided that everyone in the world deserved a U2 or you know, was to be punished with a U2 album, depending <laughs> on your on your view of U2. And so it, they just forced it onto everybody's yeah. iTunes, which it's, is just really creepy whether or not you want the album in the first place or not. Several hundred million people now have a U2 album they never paid for. Although apparently, because it appears in your iTunes and it doesn't get downloaded into you click you want to listen to it it's just in your itunes and apparently only two hundred thousand people have actually taken up 
the offer to download it, which considering that's out of several hundred million people. I think what they've done is they've actually iTunes. made that album less popular than yeah, it would have been yeah. had it gone on sale. The number of people who say, I, I, I play my iTunes on shuffle all the time. I don't want YouTube songs coming on the, without my, my knowledge. But it speaks to me of a company that doesn't realise that it's not an underdog anymore. So, no. uh, you know, Apple kind of came up through when everybody had a Microsoft computer and this was the thing that, you know, geeks and, and people who were seriously into their electronics used to have. And now they are. They're the overdog. They're the Goliath. Mm. And I just think to not realise that it will seem a bit weird. Like, somebody giving you a bunch of flowers is lovely. Some random person turning <laughs> up at your front door with a bunch of flowers at 10 p.m. on a Sunday night. Well, not even that. It's like you, you walk weird. into your yeah. flat after work and you find a fresh bunch of flowers in a, in a pot <laughs> on your table that you didn't put there. And um, <laughs> whilst I appreciate the sentiment, it's still really weird. And I think that that's one of the things that I just don't think tech giants... It's the same thing with Amazon and the way that they can alter Kindle books without really yeah. telling you and, yeah. and force that on there. It's that I, I'm surprised how little resistance there is to it, but I think this one might have been so so obvious that it might have actually really put people's backs up and made them think of Apple in a negative way. Especially because the iPhone really isn't an exceptional product anymore. I mean, always, the thing with Steve Jobs is that he was never really a great inventor, but he was a great refiner of things. Like, none of the big Apple products, the iPhone, the iPad, even the iPod, were new things. MP3 players and smartphones and tablets existed. They were just crap. And he was just the one who, he and Apple were the people who made them sort of essential products and essential like tools for everyday life um i've just realized that there's that I, we've probably really stuffed our ability to be rated on our <laughs> yeah. i like to say at this point i disassociate myself from everything that ian's saying and i've always <laughs> loved apple i will always love apple uh, they can never do anything wrong in my eyes uh, but um they have lost my train of thought sorry but <laughs> you know you know it. that steve jobs somewhere is, is is looking down on us and you know is, yeah Judging but I, us, but the trouble is that we say this and we moan about Apple, and this is a fair point. But you've still got an yeah. iPhone. See, have you? Yeah. Are you no. I've got a 4S, but I'm probably going to upgrade to Android because that's what I was saying. <laughs> the iPhone is not an exceptional product anymore. The stuff that is in the new iPhone six and six plus has been in Android phones for two or three years. And in fact, there's stuff in Android phones like wireless charging, which the iPhone still doesn't have. Um, there's things like Apple Pay and How stuff. How does that work? Is... Because that sounds like magic to me. Um, it's basic electromagnetism. Put... Wow. <laughs> it's electricity in the phone may... without you... it touching anything. Well, you know how magnet, like you know how transformers work. That not the robots in disguise. <laughs> no, as in how you change one voltage to another yes. voltage. Um, you have two cables, uh, two coils electromagnetic coils very close to each other that have different numbers of coils in each one. So you run a current through the other one and it inducts through electromagnetism a current in the other one. And that's how transformers work for changing voltages and stuff because you have small, fewer coils on one side than the other. Yeah, it's boring. Anyway. Fiona and I are nodding like we have any idea <laughs> yeah. what you're talking about. But yeah, so basically... Basically it's, it's magnets and it's magic. It's magnet. not magic, it's magnets. Magic. Well, on that note, <laughs> I will say thank you very much to Ian and Fiona. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme tune is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and our producer is Philip Morn.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out, why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts.